1: And without that kind of consideration and thoughtfulness, it's all too easy to have something like this end up back in the memory banks, memory of a good experience, but hasn't really been mined for all its value. Some consideration, some reflection can actually make this much richer as we go back forward into our life.
0: Welcome to the Be Here Now guest podcast. This series features a collection of teachings and conversations centered around mindfulness, spiritual growth, and living a life in balance. Each week, our diverse network of guest teachers and hosts offer up wisdom and practices from a different spiritual path and perspective. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com slash donate.
1: It can be quite remarkable, amazing. How much can happen when nothing is happening? I mean, not much happened here for this month, last two months. You just sat sat around. (laughs) You took some
2: strolls.
1: (laughs) Not much was asked of you. You had to occasionally show up for real discussions with the teachers. You had some work meditation you did. Didn't have to really cook or shop or work or computerize or read the news, socialize. Very little happened. And isn't it remarkable how much can happen when there's so little? (laughs) I I think people who haven't gone through this can't imagine, I think, you know, how whole universes come and go. (laughs) 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 And, um, and the journey, you know, it's really a profound journey. As I said at the beginning of the month, it's a really, you know, it's a, it's a, it's really a, an opportunity of a lifetime to do a retreat like this. I think people who do something like this, it's very rare to have this opportunity, this chance, and then to be able to go through it. And it's something that some way or other will probably stay as a reference point for the rest of your life. It's been very meaningful, I hope. I think one of the... Or what has, does happen here, and there's very little that goes on, is that uh, it opens a door for truth to come through. And I think that uh, my feeling almost is that there's a powerful momentum for truth to be known, for what's true to come out, show itself. And often we're so distracted, so distracted we don't even know we're distracted in daily life, or we're so defended or so preoccupied or something closed down that there's little opportunities for the truth to come through us in an environment like this things come things surface things show themselves because the truth wants to come out and I have been on retreat reduced to you know falling on my knees as the truth kind of has seeped in gradually, dawned on me, or hit me over the head with a sledgehammer, or something. I think there's a movement in the in the in life, in the psyche, in the mind, in the heart, wherever you, whatever you want to call it, that wants the truth to come out. And the reason for that is that the reason it wants to come out is is primarily because all the obstacles to it, to keeping the truth out or closed, it takes a lot of work. It's effort. And when we stop doing so much, when we realize the exhaustion of always doing and holding and resisting and building and making and defending and all the things that the mind does, when we realize the cost of that, and that it's not really in our best interest, and we begin to relaxing all that, then those barriers to truth fall away, and what's left is the truth. The truth is always there, waiting for us. Buddhism is a hugely vast religion with lots of teachings and texts. You could spend a lifetime studying Buddhist texts and not not even get close to finishing them all. And one of the great enterprises in Buddhist history was the way in which the Chinese Try to make sense of all of Indian Buddhism that came to them. And um, it took the Chinese about 500 years of encountering Buddhism, studying the texts, kind of getting sense, before they started getting a sense of the overall lay of the land with all the different schools of Buddhism. They didn't have any way of distinguishing the Chinese between different schools and everything. and So they had to try to somehow digest the whole big everything. And there was a famous... Uh, Chinese Buddhist scholar, philosopher in the 6th, 7th century, I think, named Tsung Mi, who wrote a great treatise, kind of overview of all of this, kind of summarize it all. He had, kind of, he had a great overview of all of Buddhism. And in this great book, he summarizes it all into one sentence. So this is the 500 years of Chinese efforts to understand Buddhism. It comes down to this one sentence. Liberation beckons us within everything. Liberation beckons us within everything. Here, right here. Right here, in everything. It's a beautiful statement because it means nothing needs to be dismissed. But everything needs to be seen in such a way that the liberation, the freedom, the truth that's in there, in that, can show itself. And in some ways, it's not exactly affirming, but it's very kind of a positive, because you can actually turn towards everything and see it for what it is. And this is one of the things that I learned from Vipassana practice was um, that I hadn't learned from doing Zen practice, was that um, you can find the truth, you can find reality, you can find freedom, by bringing attention to whatever our experience is, whatever's happening. You don't have to turn away from anything, dismiss anything, deny anything. But there's a way of bringing attention and and presence and respect to whatever's going on, that the liberation that's there, the freedom that's possible, can have a chance to show itself, to be there. So I think of this kind of retreat experience as being a powerful encounter with what's true, and that the truth just wants to come through us, wants to come out. In one way or the other, I think all of you have encountered something which is true. You might not necessarily recognize it as such. Sometimes it it takes months and months before you realize what it is that you've really encountered in a retreat like this. If the ship has turned today and tomorrow and you're still on the ship, there's no um, wharf to get off on. You're on this wonderful ship of your life and it takes different turns and the retreat actually never ends. It changes its form changes how what comes up and what you're encountering. But there is a transition, we say, between being on retreat and going back to our regular life, whatever regular is. And there's a long tradition in Buddhism that a lot of the insight of practice doesn't come from going deep into practice, but rather comes in the transition out of whatever depth that we have, whatever stillness we've had, whatever calm we've had. And there's a strong tendency to be attached to the depth, so-called depth. It's only if I get concentrated enough, that's really where it is still enough. Stillness, calm, concentration can be very pleasant, very satisfying. But what's really significant and very important in practice is to appreciate the what happens as we leave that depth or that level of calm and pay careful attention to what gets reappropriated. Pay careful attention to what gets rebuilt within us, what we pick up. And I know know for me, sometimes on retreats, you know, it's like either I was on retreat or I wasn't. And if I wasn't, then there was no need to pay any attention. (laughs) You know, just like, okay, so much for that. Let's go on to the next thing. Um, and I lost a lot of opportunities because I was just kind of like like a switch for me. And I was just up and running into the next thing in my life. But I learned that um, to slow it down a little bit and look and see uh, what are the senses of self, the ideas of self that I bring back in, that I pick back up again and act on. What are the beliefs that I have that come into play as I begin again? What are the, what's my relationship to the world that I have? What are the emotions that begin kind of streaming in that kind of drive the show a little bit, the boat? Once you get back into a full-fledged, most people get back into a full-fledged normal life, whatever that is. Sometimes, it just, sometimes it's, it's, so much is happening all at once. It's hard to see the subtlety of how the mind operates. So but when you have the vantage point of a relatively still or quiet mind, you have a great opportunity to watch the, the rebuilding, the reconstruction that happens. So the encouragement I'd like to give all of you is to be really careful over the next few days. Not to hold on to whatever calm or stillness or intimacy or whatever might be going on for you. But rather, uh, take a lot of care to notice what you what comes back, because you have an opportunity to see it in a different perspective now. Uh, what it, what kind of uh, concerns do you have about your self-image, your identity, how other people see you, how you want to, how you speak in such a way to to get them to see you in a certain way. Watch your speech. Your speech is a great window into your deeper motivations, your deeper values about how you are trying to construct this reality of yours. Why do you say what you're going to say? If you can stop periodically and ask yourself that question, especially before you speak, (laughs) But (laughs) but it works afterwards also, you know why am I about why am I about to say what I'm going to say, or why did I say that? And uh, you know, if you're, the answer is, "Oh, it was really important information for that person to have," you probably haven't gotten to the depth <laughs> of why you're saying what you're saying. what are you trying to accomplish what are you trying what, what are you trying to convey about yourself what are you trying to convince the other person about who you are what is the kind of what, what are you trying to, what kind of relationship are you trying to establish in the conversation uh what are you trying to protect from happening what are the choices you make between what you share and what you don't share there's a lot that goes in there and just asking that question why am i going to say what i'm going to say this, that is a whole path in itself. But here we have an opportunity. So when you start, when those, those of you start breaking silence here and having conversations, I'd encourage you to do something here, which uh, normal, normal societies may be considered impolite. And that is, um, um, maybe put your hands up like this. So it's a sign of respect and then say, um, you know, I think I need to take a pause in the conversation. Can we continue in a minute or two while I breathe? And you kind of take stock and see what's going on. Find out what's going on. You'll learn a lot that you wouldn't learn if you just kind of barreled ahead in the conversation. If you stop, you might also feel the tremendous power, the pull into being conversing and explaining and talking, and it's a tremendous, you know, it's like it would solve the California energy crisis if we could just plug, you know, the grid into you. And then, you know, over the next days, there'll be some talking, and then back to silence, talking and back to silence. And the the back to silence meditation might feel not as settled as you used to. But, um, uh, don't measure what's important by how settled or not settled you are. Measure, measure it by how you bring your attention, your mindfulness to be present for that, to hold that in awareness, both to learn how to hold and with equanimity, more agitated states. That's a very, very significant learning. But also, uh, what, what is this, uh, what does it teach you about yourself? What can you learn about yourself as you see the concerns of them coming back in? I, I consider this next phase of the retreat an extremely important part of the retreat that's often um, underappreciated. I know there are plenty of people, including myself and some retreats I've sat, who have felt that uh, once the s- silence is broken, Really, the retreat's over. There's no point in staying. You might as well go home. And I think it's a, it's really a tremendous loss not to take this on as a really important part of the overall practice experience. The truth is here, waiting for us, ready to come out. Given half a chance, the truth will come. So um, <clears throat> I'd like to offer you, uh, um, and, or mention to you, two major uh, divi- divisions of, uh, or categories of Buddhist practice. Or say that B- Buddhist practice sometimes divided into two classes of activities. And one has to do with letting go. And the other has to do with picking up. One has to do with the deconstruction and the other has to do with the reconstruction. There's a Chinese uh, Zen story of a person who's climbing the, what's it called, uh, the symbolic mountain towards enlightenment. Some people think enlightenment's at the top of the mountain. So trudging up, it's heavy work carrying the backpack, going all the way up. And then, um, coming down the mountain is the great Bodhisattva of wisdom, as an old man carrying a big bag. And so the person recognizes, oh, it's the embodiment of wisdom walking down. I'll ask, what does it take to get enlightened? So, so he asked the old Bodhisattva Wisdom is all stooped over, carrying his big bag. What does it take to get enlightened? And the old man drops the bag. And then the person says, well, after that, then what? He picks up the bag. (laughs) (laughs) and continues to walking down the mountain. And walking down the mountain, in Chinese kind of symbolism is returning into the world. We go back to the world, and we pick up our personality, we pick up all this stuff, because that's what happens when you go back to the world. But you go back to the world in order to be of benefit to the world, to give our gifts to the world. But when you pick up your bag, you don't have to pick up everything that's in it. And that's one of the the things to do it, this juncture, both in the next few days, but also especially after you leave here, is to reflect from what you've learned here. What is it? What are the behaviors, activities, ways of living, ways of thinking, ways of relating that you really are behind, support, supportive, interested in pursuing? And which of the things you normally do in your life is a time to say goodbye to. I don't need that anymore. I believe that uh mature practice of liberation is supported by some evaluation, some consideration, some reflection about the choices we make and we're not only expected just just be mindful of everything, and everything will be okay. We're also asked, I think, or have the opportunity, to be mindful and then to actually consider what is it we want to do or not do. If the if your place of work, for example, is a place with lots of gossiping, and you've been one of the major gossip centers of your and you realize, you know, maybe from the vantage point of the sense of ease and subtleness and purity, maybe, or something about how you are here in the retreat, kind of integrity that comes from just being grounded and centered in your body, where you feel some care and maybe compassion for others. You feel, you know, that, that gossip thing, I don't think I want to do it anymore. And there can be a, a conscious choice, To change, the best of your ability, you know. I'm not going to hang out at the at the coffee machine because hanging out at coffee machine it's too dangerous for me. The gossip thing is too easy to be pulled into, or I'm not going to try to talk that way. So it involves a choice that comes out of reflection. One of the important lessons for me from being doing long retreats has been the tremendous value. Of living ethically. Before I did the retreats, I think I think I was more or less an ethical person, but I had no appreciation of ethics, no appreciation of living by the precepts, for example. But when I tasted a, a, a sense of what I called integrity, wholeness, subtleness, a sense of um, feeling. Um, that the heart was, um, I don't know if pure is the right word, but uh, the heart is, um, was complete or the heart was um, beautiful or the heart is settled, I could feel that certain activities, like unethical activities, would actually would form a violence to myself. And it wasn't just because I cared for other people that I wanted to be ethical, but it just felt it was like you know if if you touch a hot stove, your hand pulls away. If your if your heart is pure, it's kind of natural you pull away from certain behavior, certain activity. And so the ethics and the precepts are ways of, of, you know you know they have a new new value from the vantage point of a settled mind or a settled heart. So there's, that part of Buddhism has to do with what we let go of, and that's, and then the side of what we cultivate or what we pick up. Letting go is a beautiful thing. And um, there's a little cliche that says, uh, in the pursuit of knowledge, every day something is gained. In the pursuit of freedom, every day, something is let go of. There's letting go, and then there's picking up. Another kind of, kind of symbolic thing in Buddhism is the idea of the broom sweeping, because monastics sweep a lot. They're monasteries. And there's a saying in Japan that there's really only two things in Buddhism. There's meditating and there's sweeping the temple. And the temple doesn't stop at the temple gate, meaning it's the whole world. There's meditating, there's letting go, there's being present, being settled, being here. Realizing that just to be alive is enough. Can you let go enough in a, in certain settings? Can you let go enough in a setting like this, where so little happens, so little is required of you? Can you let go it thoroughly enough, so that just to be alive is enough? And from that place, the truth will offer you a broom, and you'll start sweeping. And be, and beyond that, what is there? Those are the two things in Buddhism. So, so there's, there's letting go and there's picking up the broom, or letting go and, you know, picking something up. The letting go part in Buddhism, some people don't like teachings of letting go, uh, because it's kind of like, you know, then, to, and, 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 you know, heaven forbid we use the R word, the renunciation. <laughs> But um letting go is not meant to diminish us, but really to bring us infinite blessings, to really enhance us. If we identify a lot with what we're letting go of, it, m- it might mostly have a sense of loss. But the idea of letting go is really a kind of gain. But not a gain for your attached sense of self, because that has to go too. So all the wonderful blessings and gain you get from letting go doesn't really benefit you, <laughs> you, <laughs> in the, in the you know, egotistical sense. But letting go is meant to enhance you. But if all you thought was a mindfulness a practice was about mindfulness and letting go, you'd miss a very important part of what uh, Buddhist practice is about. And classically, Buddhism is a lot about the path of cultivation, picking up certain things that are useful to pick up, um, to support us in this endeavor. And so some care and some consideration can go into what are the useful things to pick up and to engage in, to cultivate and develop. Um, and one of the uh, uh, important concepts in the path of cultivation is the idea of skillfulness, becoming skillful. This is a crucially important concept in the teachings of the Buddha, the idea of skills and skillfulness. And uh, in fact, the Buddha very seldom uses things like good and bad or good and evil to distinguish things. But he uses the categories of is it skillful or unskillful which I sometimes translate into English as, is it helpful or not helpful? So when we are considering what we should do, the question is, is this skillful or is it not skillful? Is it helpful or is it not helpful? But in order to know what's skillful, we have to know skillful for some reason, some purpose. You don't develop a skill just for its own sake usually, but a skill has some kind of goal. And so one of the things we incorporate or pick up is some vision of a possibility. Profound uh, experience of realization helps us to see things as they are as well as seeing things as they could be. <clears throat> to see things as they are, and they, you can also then see, you can see, oh, they, things could be without me being so attached to television. Things could be without me caught up in always trying to prove that I'm right. Things could be without me being driven by my fear. Things could be without me feeling so resentful. Things could be in a world where I respond out of compassion and care. And to have a vision of a possibility, of a potential, is a very important part of allowing us to grow and develop in the Buddhist path. And uh, So much so that I would say that if all you did was mindful of the present moment, without any concern or thought about the future, you shortchange yourself in the practice. Now, probably some of you know the dangers of thinking about the future, you know, and how you you can lose yourself in the future for hours or days on time in here. So I'm not saying, you know, spend all your time thinking about the possibilities. But there's a time and place for having a real deep, almost intuitive appreciation that something is possible. And it's worthwhile picking up that possibility. or or aiming for that possibility, living a life as if that's possible, to attain that potential. And so in a retreat like this, um, is there some reference point here, some moment, some hour, some day that you had here, that showed you a possibility of how to live that's very different from how you normally live your life? And is it is that is that possibility something that inspires you, is meaningful for you, that points you in a direction? Please don't make it be something that points you to an attachment, because that's you know just. I mean, so many meditators have been attached to experiences, and I've known people who spent years trying at one experience during one sitting, and then spent years pursuing that same experience. Until they realize they're wasting their time. But is this, so don't get attached to it, but there's some way of looking at it <clears throat> and saying, you know, this is really speaks to some profound potential possibility. So, in my situation, when I uh, was in my early years of practice, uh, for me, the practice brought me what I described at the time a sense of integrity that I, 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 was not, I didn't know about before I started practicing. And that sense of integrity was very meaningful for me. And I would sit down to meditate and feel this integrity. <clears throat> and after a couple of years, it dawned on me, um, why should I only experience this integrity when I meditate? It's the same mind when I meditate and when I'm not meditating. What would, it, what would it take to live that integrity in my daily life as well? and a major part of my buddhist practice buddhist path was not so much going deep but rather surfacing into my life tasting something something that i called integrity the integrity i felt it just happened and didn't require a lot of concentration i was very poorly concentrated I didn't require a lot of mindfulness they hardly knew about mindfulness it mostly came from leaving myself alone. And meditation in those early years a lot about just leaving myself alone. I don't know about some of you, but I was not leaving myself alone. And it was a, it was a very significant thing. Leave myself alone, and things kind of settled in this kind of wholeness, something. It wasn't dramatic, but it was meaningful enough. But then it became my pursuit and there, I went and went off to San Francisco Zen Center and went, lived there and went to the monastery and became a priest. And a big part of it was not so much to go deeper into meditation, but rather how can I expand what was going on in my meditation out into the rest of my life in the conversations I had with people and the work that I did and whatever. So is there some possibility that you've tasted here that is meaningful for you? And is there some, a wise way of holding it, skillful way of holding it, helpful way of holding it, that, uh, it can become a reference point for a direction you want to set your life and direction you want to go. And without that kind of consideration and thoughtfulness, it's all too easy to have something like this, uh, end up back in the memory banks, memory of a good experience, but hasn't really been mined for all its value some consideration, some reflection uh, can actually make this much richer as we go back forward into our life. So, the, so in the path of cultivation, of picking things up, one, one part of it is developing skills. And um, the, um, so we develop a skill in being mindful. A skill skill of being able to be calm, a skill in being maybe non-reactive, a skill in being patient, a skill in being generous, a, spill, a skill in being kind, a skill in being um, maybe wise, discerning, a skill in reflection, um, a skill in negotiating difficult conversations, a skill in being at our body, connected to our body, mindful of our body. These are all skills, things that can be developed. And to take the time and the care to develop these capacities we have is an important part of practice because, I think as someone said, maybe Donald, um, uh, as we cultivate ourselves, we make ourselves more accident-prone. Or as we cultivate ourselves, we, we, we make ourselves into a better container, a better vehicle for the truth to come through us. Uh, skill, <clears throat> the word in Pali is kus, um But the English word skill is, um, it's, I think it's a Germanic, Indo- Indo-Germanic Germanic word. And um, it, it comes from the root meaning the ability to separate things. And in fact, in Norwegian, which I speak, um, it's, uh, it still means that, to separate out things. And um, And if you think of someone like a swimmer who's learning to, you know s- learning the skill of swimming, it's a pretty repetitive thing. swim back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But as the person swims more and more and more, their ability to separate out finer and finer uh, movements, finer fine movements of the muscles, they can slowly refine and refine the movements of their arm through the water. The first time you go through, you know, it's pretty, pretty choppy if you're just learning to swim. But as you develop a skill, you, your muscles learn finer and finer distinctions. And part of the value of a lot of repetition is we start to conceive finer and finer um, detail of what is going on. So that's one of the things that happens in meditation. And why meditating on a regular basis is so useful. We're developing a skill that helps us to make finer and finer distinctions, see for more and more detail, what's actually going on. So we can, and as we make more and more detailed discernments, there's a much wider range of choice about what is skillful, what's a useful way of living our life. If you're, if you don't, not familiar with something, you don't see the range of choice that you have. If you don't see choice, you don't have choice, but if you uh, but if you develop your capacity to see clearly, your ability to distinguish, you have more choice. So, developing of skill has a lot to usually has a lot to do with repetition, doing something over and over and over again. It also so practice. It's called practice. You know why it's called practice, right? Because it, you know why we call practice practice. It's because it takes practice. And, um, I used to be kind of sometimes in the, in the magic school of Buddhism, where I thought it w- I was just going to wait for the big lightning to strike. And then, you know, and then I would be happy ever after. But I think there's something very, um, uh, mature about, uh, embracing the practice as something that we're going to both learn the skill in letting go. But also the skill of cultivating ourselves, developing inner strengths, becoming a stronger person. I would hope that as you practice here, that you also become stronger, more able to more stable, rooted, grounded. There's more, uh, more, not, you don't just become more open, but you become more open with some inner sense of power as well. It's not just a matter of letting go and trusting, but it's also a matter of acting, stepping forward, and doing. So I'd like to read this story. There was once a monk who was known for his relaxed and trusting nature. No matter what was happening, the monk would smile. If circumstances were challenging, he would say, if we can accept how things are, and keep a positive attitude, everything we need will unfold on its own. Isn't that great? Once, when the monk was on a month-long retreat in a hermitage deep in the forest, he witnessed a remarkable interaction between a deer and a tiger. The deer, injured, came stumbling into the clearing in front of the hermitage. Sometime later, a tiger wandered into the clearing and saw the wounded deer. The monk held his breath, convinced that the tiger would surely kill and eat the deer. The deer, too, was clearly worried. But as it could no longer walk, the deer accepted its fate, lying very still in the grass. To the monk's surprise, the tiger spent the next few days standing guard over the deer until a deer was well enough to wander off again on its own. The monk was elated at this sight, as it seemed to validate his idea that if we could only accept whatever happens fully enough, the boundless goodness of the universe would take care of us all. Sounds good? (coughs) A few days later... Lightning struck a neighboring hermitage only a hundred feet away. At first the roof smoldered and smoked. The monk accepted this. The roof then caught on fire. The monk accepted this. Then the rest of the hut started burning. The monk accepted this too. Soon the entire hermitage, neighboring hermitage, was gone. And the nun who lived there was slightly injured, attempting to battle the flames. When the abbess came to investigate the fire, she asked the monk why he didn't go and help put out the fire. In reply, the monk told the story of the tiger and the deer, and how it had taught him the importance of surrendering and accepting things in the way the deer had done. You fool! Bellowed the abbess. Certainly there are times when you when you should be like the deer. But if you are to be spiritually a spiritually mature person, you should also know when to be like the tiger. With that the abbot sent the monk packing. Don't come back until you know how to be a tiger. Only when you accept this part of yourself. Can you understand what it means to accept things how they are? So are you a deer or are you a tiger? I hope you're both. And I, but I hope you have the wisdom or the, the kind of trust that allows each one to come forth when the situation requires one or the other. There are times when we surrender and let nature take its course. Nothing else you can do. And other times, when you're the protector, when you're, you have to be ferocious, you have to be strong, you have to act. And, um, and the remarkable thing is that um, I think it's the heart will know what to do. If you, The problem with this monk is he had a policy. He had a philosophy that was a policy and so he was following his policy accept things and things everything will everything work out okay policies are not good ideas but what is it if you let go enough and and see what the how the heart wants to respond or the, the depths of your mind how it wants to respond you have to let go enough so there isn't any more subtle clinging or resistance to things. But the heart will respond. And I hope that sometimes you can be tigers. The world needs more tigers, ferocious defenders. So the Buddha, Buddha put a tremendous importance on developing skills, developing a skillful mind. And, uh, one of the important points I want to make about this is that a skill is not a state. It's not an experience. Experiences come and go. But skills are more enduring. If you develop a skill, it'll go too if you stop practicing. But, is, but if you keep it up somewhat, you can, you know, that's, that skill can stay for a long time. For example, I, I grew up skiing. And the last time I skied, uh, growing up, I think I was 19. And then I didn't ski again until I was something like 46 or something. That's a long time. And, um, actually it was with John, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and I told them, you know, I don't, this has been a while. <laughs> <clears throat> so he just took me on the black diamond instead of the double black diamond. <laughs> John. <laughs> but, um, you know, a lot of it came, was right there. The skill was, a lot of it was still there after 25 more years. Skills can be much more enduring. So we developed a skill of love and kindness. It's a skill we develop to call on it, to know how to use it. We develop the skills of concentration, the skills of letting go, the skills of generosity. There's so many skills. Skills of patience, the skills of renunciation, of wisdom, of equanimity. A beautiful skill that Buddhism emphasizes is the skill of resolve, determination. It's an important thing to have strong resolve, strong determination, for all the emphasis on letting go it can seem like, you know, if that's all it's all about, you know, maybe the point is to become kind of a wimpy Buddhist. But it's uh, also be strong, to be strong, to have a strong sense of resolve. It's a skill. And all these skills are developed not by snapping your fingers, expecting to be there. They are developed by ongoing practice. And, and often, development gets slow and incremental. But we enter into these, the world, so one of the things to consider as you enter into the world, into your normal life, where perhaps the opportunities for long sittings, going on retreats, tasting the depth of what you've tasted here is not so accessible. It's very, very significant and supportive and helpful to develop skills in daily life. It's so actually something that uh, daily life um, is is really best often done very well in daily life. Is can you the, can you develop the skill as if, as if it's a skill to be generous, to look for opportunities to be generous in daily life? The people you encounter on the street, or friends, or neighbors, or whatever, even this simple uh, generosity of your presence, or your smile, or your hello to someone. Developed as a skill, as a strength that becomes kind of second nature. To develop a skill in being patient. Something is in your supermarket line, and there's a long line, and, they, and the people you chose the wrong line. And you know, and should you go to the other line? It's going faster, and you go over there, and now that one goes slow. So you could practice impatience. And if you practice a skill of impatience, that grows. But if you practice a skill of patience, that grows. One way or the other, you're always developing a skill. And the question is, are are you choosing what skill to develop? Or are you letting the neurotic mind choose for you? One of the skills is a skill of being mindful. Mindfulness is considered a skill that you develop and get stronger. So you're standing in that, that market line waiting for your t- turn, and the skillful thing you do, let's just be mindful here. Or let's, let's cultivate that skill of letting go. I've heard letting go is a useful skill. Maybe it's a muscle. And the more you exercise the muscle, the more it becomes available when it becomes really important. Maybe it's relatively easy to let go of your impatience in a supermarket line. And so, maybe it's a good place to exercise that muscle. And then when you find yourself at the doorstep of death, maybe that muscle is more available. It's been developed or you find yourself on the retreat the next time, and your meditation is not going very well. Your meditation is not what it's supposed to be. This is not what I signed up for. So you could cultivate impatience, anger, irritation, despair, disappointment, or you say, oh, you could cultivate letting go. Letting go of despair and disappointment and expectation, and just—it's it's a lot simpler if it's just a agitated meditation. Then you assign all this meaning on top of it, expectation. So there's all these muscles that we develop, get familiar with, and use. We get to—we we, we do it over and over again, and we develop greater distinctions. We separate out the all the little details of how it works. We get better and better at it. And find we can apply it to more and more situations. It becomes easier and easier to use it. At first, it might sound exhausting, all this doing. That's why that's why I came to Buddhism to stop all this doing. I'm always doing, but some doing is very useful, and it takes effort to learn how to ride a bike. But after a while, uh, you might learn. You might be able to ride a bike almost effortlessly. I eventually learned how to ride a bike without using the handlebars. It was so easy. So skills are enduring and also skills can be developed in situations that are not ideal. In situations that are challenging for you, where things are not working out the way you want, there's always the opportunity to use that difficult situation to develop a skill. So take, for example, a really, really, really lousy meditation session. That if you're measuring it, the success of that meditation session by it being an experience of calm, subtleness, concentration, or something, this meditation was an utter disaster, a failure. People can think that way. But if you realize that what's important is not the experience, but rather the opportunity to develop a skill, you might actually develop more skill in a lousy meditation than in a good one. So uh, some of you have read my book, so, but the analogy I give there is um, if someone's going to row across a lake and it's a beautiful day, the wind is blowing in the back, pushing you along across, The currents, the waves are pushing you across. The, otherwise, the water is really still and calm. Every time you dip your oar in the water, you sail across. takes no time at all to get across the lake, and you can gra- congratulate yourself. for What a great rower you are. <laughs> wow, I'm really good at this. Then the next day, someone else is going to row across the lake. But now the wind is against the, the boat, the waves are against the boat. The currents are against the boat. Um, and it's really hard going. And the person rows really hard, rowing and rowing and rowing and rowing. And it, you know, gets out to the middle of the lake and still gets pushed back and back and finally gets pulled all the way back to the, where they started and just hopeless. They couldn't get across. They failed getting across. And they might say to themselves, Oh, I'm a lousy rower. What a terrible rower I am but which of those two people has gotten stronger in the process the person who sailed across with effortlessly or the person who failed getting across the person who tried so hard and even even in trying failed got a good exercise better than the gym the fact that you fail in what you set yourself out to do doesn't mean that the activity is a total loss. If you remember, you're also developing skills: skills of patience, letting go, skills of self-understanding, of generosity, of ease, of peacefulness. So, finally, last thing I would like to say is that um, the goal that Buddhism offers you the goal of liberation is found in the means, is echoed in the means. I think Heather said this earlier in the retreat. In that the goal of the practice is to be peaceful, profound peace, without the profound sense of not being in conflict with our awareness, our beautiful consciousness, our heart, is not in conflict with anything the path, to means, is to be peaceful. If the goal is to be generous, the means is to practice generosity. If the goal is to be loving, the means is by loving. If the goal is to let go, the means is letting go. If the goal is to be at peace, The means involves being peaceful with what is. To learn to be at ease and at peace with what is is a skill that we cultivate and develop. It's when maybe we can't develop it, when we have the hardest time doing it, that we develop that muscle the best that will serve us for another day. Please remember that the mindfulness practice is really best supported if it's constantly supported and formed by being peaceful with what is. Mindfulness is not in conflict with what is, but is at peace with what is, at ease with what is. And if you cultivate and develop that muscle of ease and peace with what is, you'll know when to be the tiger. And you also know when you can let go so deeply that you will understand that just to be alive is enough.